Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Father God, we're so thankful this morning that it's about your grip on us, not our grip on you. Thankfully, if that were the case, we'd have a lot of cause for fear, but we're in your embrace, the embrace of the Most High God. We're so thankful. Dear Father, for the peace that passes understanding, especially in a worldwide crisis, you've given us patience, endurance, hope, to share with the hopeless, to shine our light, your light, Lord, in this dark world so others might see and find the way to life eternal. We thank you, God, for being with us and for what you have. Thank you for guarding the church and strengthening us, God. Thank you for faithful giving that keeps the work of the gospel going strong for supporting missionaries and uh, the church and the work of the gospel in this place, God. Bless Gift and Giver as we always pray every Sunday. Father, what a privilege it is to worship you with our lives. We thank you, God, now for the word that we find here in Matthew chapter 9, two back-to-back miracles that got tangled up together, God, both so timely, reminding us of your great nearness and your wonderful power to supply everything we need to live victorious lives in this very hour. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, some years ago now, I was in the home of my cousins who live in Boston. I was back visiting them after several years of not being home. And the time came to go, and I wanted to share a little bit of the gospel with them. Uh, They were religious uh, family, and they didn't know Jesus in a saving way. It became kind of obvious, which is not uncommon for some in religious circles. And so because it's about having a personal relationship with God. It's not about religion. In fact, the religious guys in this story, of course, are not the heroes, are they? And so I was telling them the good news that I didn't depend on all of these various penance and uh, fastings and what you give up and uh, all of this repeating prayers and and all of these things um, that accompany religion, but we are saved as a gift Grace alone, by faith, Christ alone. The Bible says, who shall ever 
call on the name of the Lord and shall be saved. And so he makes it pretty easy. And, but like Nicodemus, my cousins weren't understanding these seemingly uh, new ideas and they were a bit resistant. And here's what's forever kind of burned into my memory. As I was sharing the gospel and telling them they got to know Jesus, they were standing right next to a picture of Jesus hanging on the wall. And I was so distracted by this perplexing irony that I'm telling them to come to know the one that was standing, whose image there, right next to them. And so I got in the car and my takeaway was it's, it's amazing that you can be so close to Christ and still be in harm's way. It's an amazing thing. We see that. We know that. Every Sunday, churchgoers gather. They hold hymn books and they recite prayers. They've got Bibles and all of this, and they're very close. They're religious, but they're missing that connection with Christ that the Holy Spirit comes in and raises us up to a life that could never die. And so we're going to see how that can happen in today's uh, text here in Matthew chapter 9, as I alluded to two miracles that really, the first one really underscores the fact that it's not just about being close. We have to connect with Christ in order to have life. And so let's dive into Matthew chapter 9. Uh, we'll get a little help from our friend John Mark along the way who adds some really fun details to the account. So let's get started here at verse 18. While Jesus was saying this, and I'll explain what he was saying, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. A large crowd followed and pressed around him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from all of that suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples. And by the way, Peter was leading. The other gospels uh, let us know that. Peter's asking, you see the crowd pressing around you and still you can still ask us who touched me? Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around, kind of ignoring him and to see who had done it. Verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Then we're back to Matthew 9 and verse 22. Take heart, daughter, he says, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment forward. And so when Jesus enters the ruler's house, Jairus, 
He sees the flute players and the noisy crowd, and he says, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. And news of this spread through all that region. I have no doubt about that. And so this morning, a twofer. We've got a dead girl and a dying woman. Hopeless, both of them, without a miracle of intervention by the most high God. And here comes Jesus on the scene, an illustration of the gospel, of course. John tells us, in him was life, and the life was the light of the world. So to make contact with Jesus is to make contact with life. To miss that connection is to what the Bible calls abide in death and to watch the little flicker of life that we do have slowly ebb away until we breathe our last. So here now before us are going to be two dramatic, desperate people. We're going to really focus on the woman, really. And both of their stories capture really the essence of the consequence of that terrible fall back in the Garden of Eden when we disconnected from the author of life. And so when that happens, life is hemorrhaging and death will always come calling. And so enter the gospel and we've got the savior of the world with just one touch. The hemorrhaging stops and death is reversed. We're reconciled back to God, raised to new life. Welcome to the good news. So let's dive in here. The saga begins, uh, first of all, with a desperate dad. Let's meet him. It's under uh, sad circumstances, but things are hopeful because Jesus is on the case. And so while he's saying this, that's when Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes desperately pleading for help for his daughter who had just died. So verse 18, while he was saying this, is important. It's pretty kind of cool, actually. Uh, The preceding verses there, verses 14 through 17, Jesus explaining to a Jewish crowd how Judaism is passing away and becoming obsolete because it was based, their religion, on a sacrificial system where they were offering livestock and lambs, as it were, for their sins as a temporary atonement uh, that was a prophetic picture of the Lamb of God, the Messiah, who would die once and for all for sins, shedding his own blood. And so... He was letting them know it's time for the New Testament, the New Covenant, which the Old in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 said, hey, there's going to be a New Testament, a New Covenant. And so he said, here I am, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. We don't need that sacrificial uh, system of Judaism anymore. And he described it as an old tattered shirt. And he said, in this case, it was 1,400 years old, that shirt. And uh, a patch job isn't going to cut it. You're going to need a new garment. And so, interestingly, now comes a Jew who's heard this, who wants the new uh, shirt. He wants the new clothes of the new covenant. And so, uh, we pick up here now, while He was saying this, the Jew who wants in on the new covenant comes and prostrates himself 
before the Lord. So death comes calling here at Jairus's house. Uh, it's a grim statistic, isn't it, about death? 10 out of 10 of us will die. Uh, you know, it's been said no one gets out of this alive. However, the Bible does say that those Christians who are alive at the time Jesus comes for his church do escape death and they're changed in the twinkling of an eye, but that's a sermon for another time. And so, yeah, it was Ben Franklin who said, you know, there's two certainties in life, death and taxes. So we kind of understand Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to die and face the judgment, but we're not accustomed to death coming for our 12-year-old little girls. And so death has been described in the Bible, of course, as an enemy that stalks young and old, rich and poor, famous or just a regular guy, um, good people and bad people, as it were. You could be an athlete in your prime who only shops at Whole Foods and eats organic and you work out like nine days a week. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> Death comes calling. So it doesn't matter if you're the couch potato who just likes to eat fast food and, and have Big Macs and fries. I mean, death is an equal opportunity stalker. And so here it comes for a 12-year-old girl. Just, you know, giggles and wiggles. She's in seventh grade, full of life or so it seemed. And then she caught a fever or something. And caught a nasty bug and died. And so sugar and spice and everything nice is now laying lifeless on a bed. Mom is beside herself. Dad is distraught. He's a ruler there at the synagogue in Capernaum. There, uh, the Jews have an administrator over the synagogue services today, even. They call them presidents, now not the ruler of the synagogue. We would think of him as a pastor of administration there at Capernaum. He's a man of unparalleled privilege, is he not? Because that's where Jesus was always preaching, and 80% of his miracles were accomplished right there. So he's heard, he's seen. Right, But, you know, it does seem that he kind of takes his time uh, coming to him. But like so many people in life, we hold out coming to the Lord until the last possible second. We love our autonomy and our sin so very much. And sometimes it takes something tragic to jar us loose and that we could come to our senses. And so when his little girl is gasping for breath. This softens his heart. He humbles himself and he comes. The spell has been broken. The veil over his mind lifted. And now, as one writer said, oh, blessed tragedy, oh, holy loss, that brings us to the feet of Jesus. He might have been saying, you know, Lord, 
you know, you've seen me in the synagogue and it may appear that I wasn't paying attention, but really, you know, I've, I've been listening, you know, and it may have been looking like while you were preaching that I was shopping on Amazon or doing something else. But let me assure you, I, I am all ears now. And you know what I love about the Lord? You don't read this. You don't read Jesus saying, you know what? Oh, look who's suddenly so religious, religious and, and a believer. You know, I've preached a dozen messages for you, Jairus, and not a peep out of you. But now when you need something, now when your back is against the wall, that's when you come to me. You don't hear that because God, our Savior, he loves us. He wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved by hook or by crook. Even when it's because our own sense of self-preservation or something that we love is going to be taken away, if that gets our attention, uh, he is happy that we come. That's the point, right? So continuing on here, then with Mark's account, we meet another sufferer. And so there, uh, off they go on a mission of uh, life for a dead person. Uh, so Jesus and the 12 and a thousand of his close friends there included in the crowd is a woman She's in dire straits, is she not? Suffering 12 long years with something debilitating, humiliating. Many doctors, ironically, are the source of her uh, woes and her suffering. And she spent all her money. And instead of making her better, they have made it all the more worse. So it's time to meet this sufferer, who's another illustration of the consequence of pulling away from the Lord and trespassing against him and becoming sinners. And so this woman has a terrible sickness. She no doubt has not very long to live. Now, it starts out there in verse 24, as you can see that uh, she, she uh, is in a crowd that's pressing in on Jesus. This is important because Jesus is going to make a point and you need to remember the size of the crowd and how they were pressing into him. So much so that in Luke chapter 8, the parallel passage says that as Jesus was on his way, the crowds, quoting, the crowds almost crushed him. And so that's going to be important to keep in mind because Jesus is going to make an intended point just about that. So in verse 25, in the sea of bodies and chaos, there's this woman with a secret. She's been slowly dying of a dreadful disease. There's a name for it, menorrhagia. And, um, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I do play one on TV if you're old enough to appreciate that joke. Uh, terrible pain, endless endo. Metriosis, another possibility. Uh, she's continually on her cycle. Uh, probably the worst uh, part of this is the social ramifications. In Jewish life and law, since there's a connection between uh, the pain and discomfort involved in conceiving as a woman, that that's tied back to Eve and the sin there, that in Jewish law, she was considered spiritually defiled uh, during those days. 
And so in those days of uh, in question, a Jewish woman really kind of sidelined herself from community affairs. And so they would separate themselves for a few days. But in this woman's case, 12 years, permanent social distancing, permanently. There was a host of Levitical and rabbinical intrusive, oppressive mandates placed on her. For example, if she did need to go to the marketplace, she would have to announce her condition, yelling out loud. How humiliating. So most of them quarantined themselves at home. And so... But you can't really do that for 12 years. And so this dear woman is in unimaginable suffering, discomfort, and debilitating fatigue and pain and fear and humiliation. Is she married? What a nightmare. What a nightmare. She can't fellowship in the synagogue. She can't be in the marketplace. She can't be with her husband. She cannot have children. And to add insult to injury, the doctors, she's an easy mark, an easy target for unscrupulous physicians who take advantage of her, the gospel says, and took all her money. And they made the cure worse than the disease. I read about some of it. I'll spare you the details. They put this woman through the mill. Just awful, awful. And just as she's thinking, why go on living? like this. She hears about Jesus. Look at your text there. When she heard about Jesus, she comes up from behind in the crowd and touches his cloak. There it is on the screen for you. So let's pause here for a quick insights that are are truly remarkable. Um, First of all, really, you see a faith that's not premium faith. It's kind of second-rate faith at that. And yet she gets what she needs, and it's so encouraging. But let's start here. Someone told her about Jesus. So in heaven, you're going to meet the people who are rewarded with an assist because we wouldn't be talking about this story today without them because faith comes by hearing, right? So somebody told her, right? And so there's some unsung heroes in the story, those who shared the good news with this woman, which brought her uh, to Jesus. And so she comes up from behind, of course, because she's ashamed, right? And this is personal problem. She's in stealth mode. She wants to kind of... uh, come in and get in and get what she needs and get out of there. But that's not going to happen because that's not how it works. Christianity isn't crisis Christianity that you just come darting in when you have a crisis, get what you need and get out of there. Jesus is going to correct that kind of thinking, isn't he? And so one writer said that he puts her on blast by letting this be in the gospel record to encourage those with shameful problems. Here's what he said. He said, this is teaching us, come all you who suffer in secret with shameful things and burdens and issues known to only you and the Lord. 
the likes of which you have trouble mentioning even to God, this story is told to invite all those who have unspeakable issues, personal in nature, come and find relief in the Savior who cares about your burdens. And so Jesus would probably say about those who have shameful things in their lives, look, I was shamed on your behalf. You know, he was stripped so he could cover us. He was uncovered and he took the the punishment that we deserved and by his flogging we are made whole and our sins are covered. And so uh, he invites us, you and I, to bring our deepest, darkest things to the light and have him ministered to us. So notice as I, why I wanted to stop here is the quality of her faith. She's a believer, of course, right? But she, it's, it's mixed with superstition of that day. They used to believe that uh, a person's power uh, was in their clothing. And so if you touched the clothes, you know, you would inherit the essence of that person. And so uh, she uh, is just wanting to touch the magic robes and get her miracle and get out of there. And for me, I'm so encouraged by that. Because Jesus, you know, he says, you just need a pinch of it. You just need a pinch of faith. And her faith was enough. It was sufficient. You know, we're always thinking, do I believe with all of my heart? You know, it's hard, especially in the beginning days, right? And so God is so generous and cutting. So the other thing I think about is those, like our parents, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of fruit in one of them. But they said the right words, and, and I could tell even in their weakness, they were reaching out. They had faith for sure. Not a whole lot of fruit. But this woman gives us all hope that God is willing to make it easy to take even a, a faith that seems inadequate and mixed and not pure and raise her to new life. That's amazingly encouraging for me. And so uh, let's get to the point here. Really wonderful. At once, Jesus realizes power has gone out from him, and he turns around, and he's going to make this wonderful point here. She grabs a fistful of fabric, zap, the power of God goes into her body. Verse 30, Jesus is aware that power has gone out from him. Now, listen, Jesus is totally aware of everything, but the only reason we're hearing him ask a silly question and, 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 and hear that he is now aware that power has gone out of him is to make a point for those of us who would never know because it's all invisible. And so he's taking the time uh, to do that. Verse 31, Peter wants to know what kind of question is this? The crowds are crushing you and how could you ask such a thing? Is the sun getting to you, Jesus? Kind of thing. And so the answer to your question, everyone's touching you. Verse 33, the woman knows she can't stay hidden because Jesus is ignoring Peter and eyeballing the crowd. Where are you? Come forward. 
And so she melts and she comes forward and tells the whole story. And he says, hey, no more worries, daughter. Wow, your faith in me has healed you. There's the correction. Go and live in peace and be freed from all of this suffering. And so, you know, I've said this before. I imagine this scene, you know, Jesus stops. It's a parade of hundreds of people going to Jairus' house to see him raise somebody from the dead. And Jesus stops dead in his tracks and, and everybody's rear-ending each other, falling over like a bunch of dominoes, right? And so... Not only did something happen to the woman, something happened to Jesus, and that's the essence of how we get saved. It's not about being a good person or a bad person. It's irrelevant, good and bad. It's about having the power of God come into your heart and raise you to a life that can never die. Jesus calls it being born again. So the disciple Peter, as always, is the one to insert foot in mouth. And, and he says, this is a stupid question, really? But Jesus making a point by asking that silly question. And he's saying, yes, Peter, Jesus answering him. Yeah, there's lots of people, hundreds of people right here. And there's a holy hubbub going on. And everybody's like, uh, maybe Hosanna or hallelujah. And everybody's talking about Jesus and all of this. And, and it seems... Like everybody is so close and Jesus says, no, they're not. There's only one person who's touching me. It's the woman pressing through with a need who has a little bit of faith, who recognizes that I am who I claim to be and have the answer for her greatest need. That, Peter is the only one. Yes, hands shoving, jostling me, and who's bumping into me? There's only one, because there's lots of people around Jesus all the time. But the question is, are they connecting? And so, come on. Have you ever gone to church and not met with the Lord? Come on, of course. Have you ever been through a worship service? You're singing, you're reading the words on the screen, but you're not connecting, you're, you're somewhere else. Have you ever sat in a, a sanctuary while the, while the preacher's preaching, while the pastor's sharing from God's word and not been engaged at all? Of course, so you, you're close, you're in the crowd. You're right there, but you're not. You're not touching. That happens, we can understand that that happens because we do it uh, two. And so how does she know she has saving faith? Well, there's been transformation. Immediately she knows. Sometimes it takes a while to sense that there's been a change, but the change will come if you've connected with the life of God now pulsing in your soul. So life stops hemorrhaging and she starts living. She leaves this encounter differently. That's the test. Have you left in a living, uh, electrifying exchange with God differently? You live differently now, free of uh, all of that suffering. And so uh, now she has life instead of death, and she has peace instead of shame. She has hope instead of despair. And instead of being alone and isolated, what, she... She's connected to a community, a family, and to a father. He says, daughter. 
You see, it wasn't my clothes. It was faith in me, the relationship that makes you my daughter. That's why you're saved and will live differently. So he corrects her faulty faith to make it strong and healthy. And P.S., the connection that saves is the connection that sustains. That's why in John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking at the Last Supper, and he says, just remember this. Apart from me, you can't do a thing. You need to abide in me. So this picture of the touching Jesus and having the life and the power of God flow into her very soul is not a one-time thing. It's a 24-7 thing that we walk with him, connecting with him, turning our hearts and our minds, our, our very souls to him, to, to let nothing impede the flow of life, of the energy, the life source of God himself flow into us and give us life, as the Bible calls it, life that is truly life. So this is our woman. Well, we put poor Jairus on hold, and it's not like his miracle is second rate. But, uh, I mean, you could preach sermon after sermon about that encounter as well. Let's take a look at it in closing. There are a few uh, lovely insights here awaiting us. And so verses 23 and following, he gets to the house and everybody is mourning. Let's talk about that. So they uh, get to where they were originally headed there. Now, number one, Jairus gets an A plus, doesn't he, for his behavior? We don't see him nervously tapping his foot and always telling everybody what time it is, you know. Uh, let's get going. I have a dead daughter here. And so, uh, no, at faith, his faith, Let's him be assured that one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, doesn't matter. The power of God will raise her back to life no matter when they get there. And so they do arrive there and you find the mourners assembled. You know, they had professional wailers back in those times who would beat their chest and wail and weep and cry. And they had professional flute players that would play a dirge, a funeral song. And, you know, Jesus comes onto this scene and he says, get out of here, get out of here. She's just enjoying a nap. And really, that's what the gospel says. When Jesus is in the room, death is just like a refreshing little nap. It's harmless and temporary, right? And so, yeah, so... These are people who live in Capernaum and have no excuse for their bad behavior when this man, the son of God, who they've been listening to, they've heard the claims and they've seen the miracles. And when he says uh, she's just sleeping, they laugh. Now, first of all, how bad does that look? I mean, they were weeping and wailing, right? And the second he says she's just sleeping, they burst into laughing. Bunch of fakers, Right. And so they're in their unbelief, they mock and deride and sneer and roll their eyes and uh, make fun of Jesus. So the mocking starts way before the crucifixion, uh, really. We see that here. And so 
Jesus drives out those doubters ruled by their fears and their unbelief, and he gets rid of the wet blankets. Get out, right? And so then the Bible says he takes her by the hand. And in Mark chapter 5, he speaks in her mother tongue, little girl, arise. So moving. Uh, She gets up, stands up, and walks around. I believe Mark adds that, or Luke as well. So not only does he raise her to life, but he restores her strength as well. And so uh, the, the mom and dad are astonished, right? The word means to be beside yourself, to be knocked out of yourself, right? To be uh, really have the wind knocked out of you. Now, if I were there, you know, I probably would have had a heart attack and he would have had to raise me from the dead, you know, because can you imagine? You know the girl's dead. You know dead is dead. You know, it wasn't like the Princess Bridler. She was kind of mostly dead. She was dead all the way dead. And so dead all the way dead doesn't stay dead. When Jesus is in the room, and there he was, the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God himself, fullness of deity in bodily form. That means he was totally God in a human body. That's why death had to be reversed there and be conquered. And so, you know what having these Uh, miracles back-to-back really says to me. You know, it really speaks to the theology of salvation. Because in one of these scenes, really, you really see the sinner reaching out to touch, right? And so they're being affected by touching God. And then in the other scene, she can't reach out. She's dead, really, right? Almost like dead in our sins. And he reaches out. And so you see in one scene, the sinner reaching out to the Savior and touching. And then in the next scene, you see the Savior reaching out to the sinner and touching because it's both. Both things are working. And a lot of us see, well, I'm more of A than B or I'm more of B than A. Barb was more of a a sinner, a needy young girl who was seeking and reaching. I was running. I was 19 years old. I didn't want anything to do with him, but he touched me. You see, together, our hearts work together with his calling, and somehow they both come together, and boom, there's life. But that life isn't going to happen unless we move from the crowd and being close. You know, in closing here, I have a friend, let's call him Larry, because, yeah, that's his name. And he started coming to the rock, so one of you uh, uh, people invited him, let's call you, well, let's not, in case I, I need to ask you before I out you like that. And so somebody invited Larry. And so Larry was listening and listening and listening. We were having lunches and, and uh, emailing and all of this. And at one lunch, he said, I'm this close. I kind of get it. I'm right there. I'm looking in the windows. And I said, how tragically sad if you die 
on the front porch of heaven. Oh, Larry, you have to live long enough to get over the threshold and into the Father's house. And I'm happy to tell you that he hangs on every word of these sermons. He loves you guys. He loves this church. He got saved, and he loves the Lord. And you know what? He reached out and grabbed the Savior by faith. And the power and the life of God went into a very dark, lonely, fearful, and confused soul. And now it's been raised up and restored to life because he made the connection. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we just thank you for your wonderful love. We thank you so much, God for reaching out to us and drawing us that we might reach to you as well. And then we meet for the infusion of a life that can never die. We thank you, Father God, in this time that we're able to put our hope securely in you, that we have touched the hem of your garment, and more than that, the very heart of God. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us, for seeing us in the crowd and coming for us out of great love. We want to love you back by being obedient to your word. Help us to do that this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.